And as you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We finally made it. We finally got ourselves to chapter 13. I think it ended up being about eight weeks in chapter 12. Um, but we have arrived at chapter 13. And we're going we're gonna to approach this a little differently. And to just be fully transparent and honest with you, the plan for this uh, has been emerging and changing even as of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of last week, uh, because rather than, or I should say this, the original plan was for us to tackle verses 1 to 8 of chapter 13 this morning, and then hit the latter part of 13 next week, and then dive back in to 14. We're going to slow that down a little bit, and we're going to pull back on the speed there um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, it's not any secret that chapter 12 was a pretty heavy chapter and taking eight weeks to get through it, we certainly approached it in a way that was heavy. Uh, There was a lot of terms, there was a lot of definitions, there was a lot of theological thought that we had to work ourselves through. And uh, when we get to 13 here, I don't want us to miss the contrast that Paul is indicating because it's significant and it's one that we need to not miss. And so rather than just finding ourselves rushing through the first eight verses of 13. I want us to slow it down. There's 15, 16 different character traits, attributes, ways of describing what love is in these verses. We're going to end up taking about five a week on average. And we're just going to slow it down. Try to unpack it. Try to understand it. Do so with a focus on how those actions should be true of us and in our lives, but then also do so with a focus on who God is and what God has done and how we see these actions of love demonstrated by God himself. And so in many ways, our big idea over the next three weeks is going to be this, because God is, we must be. Because God is, we must be. And when we get to this passage in 1 Corinthians where we're thinking about love and Paul's defining what love is, this is first and foremost a passage that describes and outlines for us what God's love is. It's not a passage that is a passage about marriage, although it's not inappropriate for it to show up at weddings and be read and beyond bulletins and those things, it certainly has application there. It certainly has application to us as a body. It certainly has application for how we deal with co-workers and how we interact with family members, whether those in our house or extended family that do not live with us. But this is first and foremost a description of God's love. And that's where we begin, because God is, we must be. And so there's commands for us to follow, but we do so because this is the heart of God. And as we are his followers, as we should be more and more looking like Jesus, these things should be more and more true in our lives. And so we're going to begin unpacking that and trying to have a focus and a view on who God is what this word or what these words for love are, 
and then we'll also think through how they can apply to a variety of different life situations. And so as we just think about application, there's a bit of a challenge there in that these actions for love, these ways to show and demonstrate love, should apply to every relationship we have. It's a little difficult for us here this morning to apply them to every relationship we have, however. And so we're going to have to just understand what the idea is and then ask the Holy Spirit to help us figure out, how do I show love like that to my kids? How do I show love like that to my spouse? How do I show love like that to my coworkers? How do I show love like that to the people that get under my skin? How do I show love like that to the people who have hurt me? Those are all the different ways, and there's a whole lot more that we're supposed to demonstrate this type of love. We're not going to be able to think through every one of those scenarios, because in many ways, every one of those are unique to you, and unique perhaps to the person who you are called to demonstrate this love to. So we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do what really He does best, and that's to help us see. And so to that end, let's pray. And then we'll hop into the text. Well, God, we pray for that. We pray for eyes to see. God, we pray that you'd help us to see what it is that you have said in your word. We pray that you would help us to see how it is that you want us to apply your word. God, there's a variety of relationships that every one of us has. It will be easy for us to love certain people more than it will be to love others. But God, you call us to just love. And so God, we pray that you would help us to see. Give us sight. Remove any blinders that we might have. God, we pray that we would understand more of your love for us as demonstrated in and through your son, Jesus, who is the exact representation of your nature. Who, when we were under your righteous frown, laid aside his crown. And so it's in his name we have gathered And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 1 of chapter 13. We're going to see a transition here. As we left off in chapter 12 last week, we were given the command to earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, as we've tried to look at throughout all of chapter 12, I don't believe there is actually a list of higher or lower gifts Paul has just simply said from the beginning, there are gifts. There's different gifts. There's different places those gifts are used. There's different results that happen when they're used. Because, or, and it's because God's doing something and it's in his sovereignty that he's given the gifts and he's given you a place to use your gift and he is the one responsible for the results that come as your gift is used. So there's not higher and lower gifts. But the Corinthians thought there were. 
they found themselves dividing and uh, elevating certain individuals or de-elevating other individuals. And so we don't say to ourselves, you're not needed, self, because you have a lower gift. We don't say to somebody else, you're not needed because you have a lower gift. There are just simply gifts, and we're all needed. And we're all needed for this call of building the body. And so the word higher is this descriptive word that is used a bit sarcastically, quite frankly. And so the command to earnestly desire the quote-unquote higher gifts is given. But then Paul immediately says, but yet I'm going to show you a more excellent way. What is more excellent than the higher gifts, as you may define them, is your action of Love And so in verses 1, 2, and 3, well in 1 and 2 specifically, Paul references five out of the eight gifts that he had referenced in chapter 12, in verses 8 to 10 there. And he does so in a way and uses hyperbole to express the fact that it doesn't matter how great of a gift it is or how spectacular its use is, if you don't have love, it just doesn't matter. And so he bookends that list, the first gift and the last gift, and expresses them in terms that are an over-exaggeration, hyperbole. And he says, beginning in verse 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men, that's the gift, and of angels, there would be the hyperbole. But have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't think Paul here in this verse is indicating there's an angelic tongue to be found and spoken in. His point is to say love is far greater than the gift of tongues. Even its hyperbolic demonstration as well. The over-exaggeration. But we need to not miss that point. And he does so continually. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move or remove mountains. But have not love, I am nothing. You see there, tongues is listed, prophecy is listed. I think the understanding of mysteries is perhaps a reference to wisdom. You then have knowledge listed and faith. Five out of the eight gifts that show up in chapter 12. And like I said, their book ended with an over-exaggeration, with a hyperbole. Tongues in the beginning, faith in the end. And the point yet remains. If I have not love, I am nothing. He continues in verse 3. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So there is an over-exaggerated statement of self-sacrifice. If I give everything I have, if I have no more possessions because I've given it all. If I sacrifice my body, but I have not love, I've gained nothing. If you were here when Dan O'Deans was here in June, he walked through this passage and he summarized it by saying this, If I don't live a life of love, nothing I say matters, nothing I know matters, nothing I believe matters, and nothing I give matters. 
a great summary to verses 1 to 3. And so it doesn't matter how great your gift is. It doesn't matter how great the place of use that gift has. It doesn't matter the results that come out of it. If you don't have love, it doesn't matter. And so as we seek to be people that build the body, as we seek to be people that make disciples, as we seek to be people who obey the call that the Lord has given us to be disciple makers, and we seek to be people who use our gifts to follow and obey that call, it doesn't matter how great the gift might be. What matters is love. And if there's an absence of love, there's nothing gained. So then in verse 4, Paul begins defining love. And he gives 15, 16 different ways to define love. One of the things that we need to note in this list that he gives in verses 4 to 8 is that these are not adjectives. These are verbs. You'd expect them to be adjectives. They read in the English like adjectives. So when you say love is patient, it's, it's describing love as something. That's what an adjective does. It's a descriptive word. But these are actually all verbs. There's an action presented in the text as Paul writes it that he doesn't want us to just understand some things cognitively about what love is. He wants us to have behaviors that demonstrate what love is. So every one of these are commands for us to follow. So over the next three weeks, you'll get 16 more commands. And love is all of these things. It's not just some of these things sometimes and some of these things at other times. It's all of these things. So think about it this way. If you would step back and evaluate a situation in your life, whatever it might be, and would say, you know, I wasn't kind, but at least I didn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It's not love. I wasn't kind, but it's not love, because love is all of these things. It's not some of these things sometimes and some of these things other times. It's all of these things. And like I've tried to say several different times, I think just a, a helpful way for us to understand just how the Bible works is that when you and I are commanded to do something, we should think I'm naturally inclined to do the opposite. So when God says, this is how you're to love, your natural inclination is to do the opposite. Or when God says, this is how you don't love, your natural inclination is to do the opposite. It's a helpful way to just understand and unpack how commands in the New Testament work and how we relate to them. So there's something unnatural about defining love this way. It's not what comes out first, perhaps. And if you find yourself in a moment of exhaustion or just a lot of frustration, it's probably not what comes out first. But it is what is to be, and it is because this is who God is. And so because God is, we must be. 
And the first thing that we must be is patient. Love is patient. This word patient means to bear up under provocation. You've been provoked. And there's a response that is patient. And because God is patient, we must be patient. And so this word Paul uses here as patient, it's a verb, like I told you. The noun form of this word shows up in what is the central confession of the entire Old Testament, first seen in Exodus 34, but it shows up in about eight or nine different places in the law, in the Psalms, in the prophets. It's everywhere. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He's patient and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's patient with you. Remember Jonah? Remember in chapter 4 where he gets by the vine and it dies and he's having his little pity party as he overlooks Nineveh and God and him have this conversation? This was the heart of Jonah's pity party, was that this is the character of God. The reason Jonah ran was because he didn't want God's patience to be experienced by the Ninevites. He wanted them to burn. He wanted judgment. He wanted a Sodom and Gomorrah moment where fire and sulfur came raining down and Nineveh's gone. And he says this. God, I ran because I knew you were patient. God's patient with us. And because God is patient, we must be patient. Paul says in Romans 2, and he's asking a rhetorical question, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience? Not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There, Paul's asking this question of the Romans to say, look, the reason God's not brought the hammer on your sin is because in his patience and kindness, he's trying to lead you to repentance. But don't confuse his patience with permission. Because God's patient, we must be Patient. God has first and foremost been abundantly patient with us. The word patient defined as bearing up under provocation. It means that you've done something to give someone the reason not to be patient. Like if my kids never try my patience, I'm not patient because I've never been given a reason to be. So for God to be slow to anger implies that we've probably done quite a bit that would lead him in the other direction. But yet he chooses to be patient because that's who he is. Now his patience does have an expiration date. There's seriousness to presuming upon his riches and his kindness and his patience. But he is patient. And if he has been patient to you, do not confuse his patience with permission. But we are called to be patient because he 
is patient. We're called to be kind because he is kind. This word kind, it's a, it's a bit nebulous to try to define. So there's just a bunch of words that get thrown out to try and define it. It's, it's excellence in what is done. It's decency. It's moral uprightness. It's loving. It's merciful. The, the root word here has the idea of useful. This word kind shows up in the Old Testament and in the New as a noun, and it's translated most frequently, good. Here in Romans 2, we'll stay there for a moment. We don't see goodness, but we see the word kindness. It's the same word. You presume upon the riches of his kindness, of his goodness, and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is kind, and because God is kind, we must be kind. But the word, like I said, in the Old Testament gets translated as goodness. And some of these verses will be familiar to us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. That word good is the noun form of this word kind in 1 Corinthians. Because God is good, because God is kind, we must be good and kind. That what we do is useful, that what we do is upright, what we do is decent. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Peter unpacks some of this. And says this in his first epistle. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See there's something about God's kindness. His goodness that we experience that leads us. To crave more and more of him. And it should and it's intended to do so. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And because God is good, because God is kind, you and I must be kind. One scholar said this, kindness is actively reaching out through deeds that demonstrate compassion and mercy. It's works that appease and extinguish the community fires set by the anger of others. I particularly like that definition. Because I don't know about you and you've ever had a moment like this, but I feel like there's moments in my life where somebody's done something to me. And kindness is not the response I want to give. What I want to say is not... Something in kind, or maybe it is in kind, but it's not kind. It's not good. And that definition of actively appeasing and extinguishing the community fire set by the anger of others, this really resonates with me. Because it doesn't matter what anybody else does. They don't force you to make the choices you make. 
You make the choices you make. We try to tell our kids that. Well, he hit me doesn't mean that you had to hit him back. But he did this and she did it. You are responsible for your own actions. But you don't know what they did and you don't know what they said. doesn't matter. Because we're talking about what you said here. See, love is patient. It bears up under provocation. So something's happened. And it's kind. It seeks to actively extinguish the community fire set ablaze by the anger of others. There's an activity to this love that seeks to extinguish the ugly. Not cover it up, not excuse it, but extinguish it and not respond in kind. It's in part what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, when we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When you respond to anger in kind, without kindness or goodness, all that's going to be left to be experienced is just more anger. But we're called to be kind. We're called to love and to be patient and to be kind. Because God is kind, we must be kind. Because God does not envy, we must not envy. Now this one gets a little tricky. Because the best way to understand this word envy is the sin of jealousy. And here's where it gets a little tricky, is that the Old Testament actually uses the word jealous to describe God. But it does it in a completely different sense than how you and I think about jealousy, or how jealousy is often worked out in our lives. So let's just be aware that these words are going to be used in some different ways, and they mean completely different things, but God is not envious. He doesn't actually have anything to be envy of or envious of because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Like when you speak everything into existence, you don't have any needs. There's no reason for you to be envious, sinfully jealous. Paul said as much in Acts 17 to those at Mars Hill, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. There's no deficiency in God. There's nothing he's lacking that he looks down at what you and I have and goes, I really wish I had that shirt. That's a nice belt. God's not envious. Because God's not envious, you and I must not be envious. Now, let's just think about this because we, we sing it. We sing it when we sing joyful, joyful. You are giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. It's that line that shows up in that song. Because this is who God is. See, you and I probably often experience some form of jealousness. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't covet. It was a big deal. 
Here's how I think jealousy works itself out. It works itself out in two ways. One's a little bit more common than the second. So I think the most common way we see jealousy work itself out is this. I want your iPhone. Like you have something that I want. We think of that as jealousy and it can give way to coveting. And then, you know, you let that go unchecked and you begin plotting how you can go steal their iPhone. Like, it's just like a silly way that that kind of works itself out. Uh, And and so the other way that it works itself out is the opinion that I don't want you to have an iPhone. See, this is going to be closely related to the you don't deserve it place in our minds. It's still a form of jealousy. Still a form of envy. So the iPhone's a silly way to unpack that, but let's try to unpack it a little bit more with some weight and significance. I want your car. I want your house. I'm jealous of what you drive. I'm jealous of the family you have. I'm jealous of the food budget you have. I'm jealous of those things. I want those things. That's one of the forms we see jealousy work itself out. But the other one's a whole lot more subtle, but I think it's actually a whole lot more devastating. You don't deserve that car. You don't deserve that promotion. You don't deserve. See, there we've made an internal judgment because we're jealous. And now this jealousy, this envy has, has flamed up inside of us where we're now angry because somebody else has gotten something that either we wanted or we think they don't deserve. And it is completely contrary to how a body of believers is to work. Just two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer. If one is honored, all rejoice. There's no room for envy there. Because if there's envy, when one suffers, there's a few in the background going, deserved it. It's about time. Been waiting for this to happen. If one's honored, there perhaps is a few in the background going, I can't believe they did that or they got that. They don't deserve that promotion. I was the one. I, I, whatever it might be. But God doesn't envy and we must not envy. We, we need to be these people that, that when one suffers, we suffer. When one rejoices or is honored, we all rejoice. Because God does not envy, we must not envy. The next two are very closely related to one another. The first is boasting. The second is arrogance. To boast is to heap praise on oneself. To be arrogant is to have an exaggerated self-assessment. Think about it this way, okay? Boasting is the outward expression of pride Arrogance is the internal expression of pride. Okay, So pride's the root sin for both of these. Boasting is what comes out of the mouth. Arrogance is what's deep in the heart. So here's how this gets manifested. Well, before we go there, let's just think about this. That Jesus said some pretty 
amazing things about himself, but they weren't arrogant and they weren't boastful because they were true. And he's the only one that gets away with saying this kind of stuff. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement. But it's not arrogant and it's not boasting because of who he is. God doesn't boast. God's not arrogant. He's humble. He's, 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 he's giving and forgiving. He's blessing and to be blessed. And so this external inflation, this boasting, which the root word for boasting is very, very closely related to another Greek word that gets translated windbag. It'd be the person always telling you how great their ideas are. Maybe if you didn't consult them, they would have criticism about your ideas. Maybe making unrequested suggestions about your ideas. The boastful person doesn't ever empower because it would lead them to have less control. In the business world, these people are micromanagers. It's the person who has to be involved in every single detail. They can't let you have a responsibility and coach and encourage and empower you to go accomplish that task because they need you to know how great they are. And so they're just going to be over you, making sure every detail gets taken care of in the exact way that they would take care of every detail. And you're just there to do their bidding because they're boastful. It's the external aspect to pride. Arrogance is the internal aspect to pride. So you don't hear it, but it's driving their actions. So the arrogant do not apologize for wrongdoing because they believe they've done nothing wrong. The arrogant do not repent of sin because they don't believe there's anything to repent of. But love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. See, dads, there's there's something powerful that happens in the souls, I think, of our our wives and our children when, when we acknowledge our wrongdoing to them. When we're willing to get on a knee and go, what dad said there shouldn't have been said. The way dad acted there should not have done it. There's something powerful, I think, that takes place in the souls of our kids when when we, in their presence, pray. Not just for forgiveness, but also for strength to obey. Jesus, help me be a man whose words are kind whose actions and heart is patient, who isn't arrogant and boastful. I think there's something tremendously significant when we, in front of those we have leadership over, ask the Lord for. Because it runs counter to this character trait of arrogance that is an affront to love and out of step with the gospel. I want to try to positively display 
um, or, or define love in these two ways for you. And I want to give you two pastor friends of mine. One lives out in Washington State. He's on fellowship council with me. He's a guy I've gotten to know over the last several years. He has a PhD in New Testament studies. Like he literally is the smartest guy in the room, whatever room he's in. Like he's that guy. You'd never know it if you were in the room with him. In fact, there's been times where I've been in the room with him that I've wanted him to say more than he was saying. Because I think he had some things to offer to some conversations. And the rest of us probably should have just gotten quiet and listened to the guy who has a doctorate in this stuff. But you'd never know it by spending time with him. Another guy, he lives in Indiana as a pastor of one of our Grace Churches out there, and I forget the exact scenario that led to this conversation, but I was in, I was in a room with him and a bunch of other pastors, and somehow the, the topic of elders got brought up. Like, how do, how do you find elders in your church? It was, it, was, it was like the question that got thrown out there. And I'll never forget his answer, because by and large, that answer generally gets referred back to, well, do, do they meet the qualifications? Do they you know, go to 1 Timothy 3? Are they, are they those things? Are they those things in Titus 1? But that's not where he started. He didn't discount that. It's just not where he started. Where he started was, I watched the guys in my church, and the guys who act annoyed when kids run by are off my radar. Because we want kids to be welcomed in our church. And I don't want men who are arrogant and think that the kids are somehow in the way. And he said, the men who stay on my radar are the ones that I see getting down on one knee and going eye to eye with the four-year-old. Because it communicates something to that kid about their significance see the arrogant and the boastful believe that them themselves are the most significant. They're not the ones to get on a knee. Because there's an over-exaggeration of self-importance that they have. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. To be poor in spirit, to mourn for your sin, to be meek is to be not boastful and not arrogant. Peter says this, and we'll end here. And if, there, if, there's, a, if there's a verse that should cause us to just shudder, and shake. This verse is one of them. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The idea that the creator and sustainer of everything, the, the, the God who spoke it all into being is going to have a focus on me and an opposition of me because I'm an arrogant, boastful, prideful man. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And it's not loving. Love is patient. 
It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. And because God is, we must be. Let's pray. Well, God, we pray that you would reveal areas in us where we are not those things. That you would give us eyes to see where we need to confess and repent and acknowledge that we're out of step with what you call us to. And so God, we we cast our mind to Calvary. And we praise you and in doing so, we pray that you would cause us to have a renewed desire to be like you. And because you are these things, that we would strive to be these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.